Well, I want to welcome you as well. My name is Simon. I am one of the pastors here. So if you're new and wondering who I am, that's who I am. Glad you came to join us. Uh, I would love to meet you before you leave. Just shake your hand, hear your story, how you came to wander into our church. But we're glad that you're worshiping with us, singing with us, and really just sitting under God's word. For those online, so grateful that you can join in this way. Because you can't make it, glad we can have that as an option so you can still follow along as we go through James. Uh, here's the thing. I can remember certain nights and certain days more than others. Can we all agree that there's just certain times you remember? Well, the night that I'm recalling right now, I remember it very clearly. I remember uh, when it was. I remember where I was at. It was, uh, it was the evening time. I had walked across the street from my house on Blossom Hill Road in San Jose, California, and I was frustrated. I was very frustrated with life in that moment. And something had happened. I had come to Jesus at a point where I was a freshman in high school, and I was, I was at that point, I'm like, I'm going to everything. I went to all the youth events. I went to all the camps. I went on missions trips. I was at every meeting. I was in a little group where we would talk about Jesus, and I was reading the Bible, but there was this problem. In those four years, I was still living the same life that I was living before Christ. I was still doing the things that now I knew we're really, really wrong. Like, those things that I'm like, oh, it's illegal, but no one cares. Now I'm like, it's illegal, and I could get arrested. Like, this is probably not good. And so I was doing illegal things. I was treating uh, women in the group uh, without respect. I was highly disrespectful to any and everyone who disagreed with me or didn't see things my way. I, I was rude. I was arrogant. And, and I realized that what I was doing was the same thing I was doing before, I was just in a church building, and I was feeling frustrated because I looked at my life. I'm going, what I say and what I claim are not matching up with how I'm living my life, and I was, I was at this point where there was all this tension, and I remember sitting there going, what am I going to do? With it? Is, this just, is this just me playing games with God? Is this just me trying to get the fire insurance ticket so when I die, I just don't go to hell? Is that, is that what this is all about? Or do I really love Jesus? Do I really love God for who he is? And I had a come-to-moment Jesus time there. And I, I remember sitting there, and I was going, I don't want this dead faith, this faith that doesn't do anything in my life. I want the living faith that I was seeing in others at the church. I wanted that living faith that I read about in the studies that I was going through studies with people. And so I remember on that moment sitting on this cement pylon across the street from my parents' house, and I just said, I'm done playing games, God. I'm all in, and I'm just going to start living my life for you. And it didn't happen overnight, and as a matter of fact, no one believed me. <laughs> and it took time as I grew in my faith and trusting God and being obedient to God and believing what his word said. And there was fruit that started to develop in my life. Now, here's the thing. Tension isn't always a bad thing. As a matter of fact, if you think about tension, it's actually not that bad at all. Because what tension does is it identifies an issue where things aren't working right, doesn't it? It says something's not working the way that it needs to. And that tension causes you to have to address it. So what it does, if it's, if it, let's say it's a friend. If you have a friend, if you're having a, 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 a fractured relationship, there's tension there, isn't there? Are they mad at me? Am I mad at them? Are they okay with me? Are, are we in a good spot? And what's that cause you to do? You got to have a talk, don't you? 
you got to sit down and talk with that individual, and you got to work through whatever the issue is in your life. See, we need to have resolution in life, and that tension allows us to have that resolution in where we are. See, this is what James is doing this morning. As we move into this section, which, and I'll just go ahead and say it right up front, this is probably one of the hardest passages in the letter of James. When people read this, they go, wait a minute, and there's always a big pause in this section. So it's going to be one that, it's not that complicated. We just need to talk through it a little bit and make sure we understand what's going on. But James wants to put that tension in place so these men and women who are dealing with difficult circumstances, going through hardship, are able to kind of understand what it looks like in their life and where their faith is playing out and where it's not. So what I want to do is I want to open our Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to be in 14 through 26. You can follow along on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats underneath you. And if you like, I don't have a Bible, period, take it home, keep it. That's a gift from us to you that you would have that Bible and use that. So I'm just going to read, and then we're going to jump right into it. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Do you see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works? And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, thank you for this passage. I thank you as I've just been able to study it and go through it. Uh, I thank you for opening my eyes to so many great things as I won't have time to cover them all. But Lord, I ask that as I speak that you would press on people in a way that, that there might be some tension right now in their life, that they would see that not as rejection, not as uh, your lack of love, but they would see it as your love because you love them so much that you are pressing into their lives so they would grow in their faith, that they would trust you more and obey you, knowing that you are the king of the universe who went to great lengths to save them, to purchase them, and to grow them in their faith. Lord, if there's anything from my notes that's not from you, Lord, I please just take it away from my mind, from, from the screen, from everything, so I would just not say anything that is inaccurate or a distraction to who you are and what you're doing. I love you. Pray all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. All right. So maybe some of you are feeling a little uneasy about the passage that I just read. And you're like, wait a minute. What's going on here? I know my Bible, and I know what Paul says. And Paul says some stuff about faith and works as well. And what you just read feels very contradictory to what Paul just said. So, is the church shutting down? Did we find the brokenness in the church? 
Should we just, hey, let's just pray and be done. Everyone go on your way. It's okay. We're the first church to figure this out. No. This is nothing new. I want you to know that it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. Bear with me. I want to just let you know a couple of things is that um, when it comes to faith by grace alone, right? Like through grace alone, through faith alone, we hold to that. We believe that. I'm affirming that. It's on our website. We're not moving away from that. We're not changing to a heretical standpoint, okay? So just take a deep breath, and let's kind of just jump into this. So we need to understand this. If you've been following us uh, as we've been moving through the book of James, James isn't saying anything new at this point. He's been kind of working through this idea that there is uh, an activeness in the life of a believer and what we do from, and what we say. And so he would say things like, be doers of the word, a doer who acts, you know, what is real religion, one that goes and serves the widows and the orphans. So he's talking about this thing playing out in our life. We just get to a point where he's being very, very concise and very, very direct with what he's saying so we can walk through it. Now, we need to understand also, these men and women are going through a difficult time in where they are. There's a lot of trials, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of things that are happening. And so the message that he's communicating will play out as how they respond. So keep that in mind to what the world looks like and what Christians look like. So the first thing we want to do is I'm going to have some points up here. The first one is the question. If you understand what James is doing, he kind of lays out exactly what he wants to talk out right in the beginning. The first verse is literally a question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's asking a question. He wants us to know that there is something going on within the church, and he's asking a question so we can answer that. And then everything he's going to say after this is going to be directly attached to that very question. He's been pointing to it all along. He's like, hey, listen, if you say this, this thing will be evident. And he's saying, if you've been saved, if you know Jesus, there's going to be some kind of fruit that's going to play out in your life. And I want to talk about that. And he's saying, the problem would be is if you think that you can just say a bunch of stuff and your life's not changed, like, what, what good is that? What is that doing in your life? And he's going to use four illustrations that we're going to look at today in this particular section. And so the next one is going to be right into that. So it's more than words. It's uh, 15 through 17. So what he says is the first illustration is this. Say you see someone who is hungry and who is cold because they're not clothed well, and you walk by. And I, I, I read these and I laugh sometimes. I'm like, this is just like, if you did this, you're just the worst person in the world. Like, hey, hey uh, be, uh, be warm and filled. Hope that works out for you. And you just keep walking. Have you helped that individual at all? Is, like, oh, that was just so, such nice words. I'm still hungry. I'm still freezing. I think I'm going to die. You've done nothing for me whatsoever. And it's, he's using this, this comedy within that because that's exactly what he's saying about our faith. If your faith is the same way you say, hey, I have faith, but then there's nothing that shows of it, is that done anything in your life? Has it done anything in your heart? Is there anything going on there? Um... Let's say this. Let's say, uh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off on that. I'm, I'll get there. Let's say I tell you that I'm an Anaheim Ducks fan. And I know there's like two of you here, so good for you. Um, and I say, I'm an Anaheim Ducks fan. I love the Ducks. I go orange. I'm all in. Quack, quack. You know, I'm at the games. I go to the pond. This is fantastic. I'm all for them. And I, I, I watch them. I, I know there's stats. And you're like, that's great, Simon. 
That's, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you have a, a hockey team that you love. But then you come in my office, and you're like, why do you have hockey pucks that have the shark's emblem on them in your office? How come when I went to your garage, you have a big sign that says San Jose Sharks? As a matter of fact, when I went up into your room, which I don't know why you're in my room, and when I went to your closet, I saw that you have multiple Sharks jerseys. And then you have all these Sharks hats. And I saw you at a game, and, and you were there, and you were cheering for the Sharks. You're probably going to question if I actually like and have loyalty towards the Ducks, aren't you? You're going to say, well, that doesn't, doesn't make sense. You're like, well, I don't like hockey. Let me give you another one. <clears throat> let, me, let's, let, me, let me say this. Let's say, hey, I'm a runner. I'm pretty spry for my age. As a matter of fact, I can run a sub-four-minute mile. I just want you to know that I'm pretty quick, and I, I can get around. If I was to tell you that, what would you say to me? Oh, you just think so poorly of me, don't you? <laughs> you, you prove it. Aren't you going to say that? You're like, I'm sure you're right, Simon. I would love to go with you down to the track. Uh, I have a watch. It's actually calibrated. And, and I would love to just, just time it and just see how it is. Because if I just say that and there's nothing there, how do, we, how do you know? How do you know that that's really what's going on? See, what he's saying is that there's this, there's this evidence that's going to happen. When you say something, there should be evidence behind it. The marriage of faith and works is really what verse 18 is talking about. He says, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Um, we love compartments in life, don't we? I've got my work friends, I've got my school friends, I've got my church friends, uh, I've got my gym friends, and we like, uh, you know, I hang out with these people here, and I hang out with those people there, and we like to put things in nice little neat compartments in how life works. The problem is, is if you want to put something in two compartments, you need to have what? Two things, don't you? You need to have two things. And it's hard when you try to take a one thing and put it into two things because it can't occupy two spaces at the same time, can it? And so at times, what I believe is the problem in the church, and I've preached this a number of times, is that we're trying to separate faith and works, and we're trying to make them very different things. When in reality, is they're one and the same thing. One lends to the other. It's always going to lend to the other thing. And so here's what ends up happening. If you wrestle with faith and works and what that looks like in your life, you're going to constantly be picking it up and moving it into this box. And when it doesn't work there, you're going to pick it up and you're going to put it in this box, and you're going to be at battle with yourself all the time. And the reality is this, is that they work in conjunction constantly. We're trying to separate something out that was never meant to be separate. They're one in the same. I remember when I was at a church at one point, and we had brought two different groups of people together to plant this church that we were going to do. And I remember one group of people came from this church, and they love theology. They want to talk about dead people all day long. They want to open up books that were dusty and smell that at least that person's been dead for about a century. They wanted to talk about all this stuff, and they wanted to debate, and they wanted to argue, and they were happy as a clam to do it. You're like, this is the best. Well, then there was the other part of the church. And they loved to serve. And they loved to go out and evangelize. And they loved to reach those that were lost. But they didn't know their theology super well. 
They knew Jesus, they understood the gospel, but their theology just wasn't as strong there. And so when these two groups came together, we had this problem. Because the theology people are like, these people are dumb. They don't know anything about what the Bible says. They don't want to talk about this. And the other people are like, you guys are lame because you don't go out and you don't serve anywhere. And I remember sitting down with them and said, you're both right and you're both wrong. Both of you. They both work together. The idea of good theology is that as it goes into your head, it then goes down to your heart and it stirs up worship. It stirs up understanding of who God is and what he's done in your life. And then that plays out and it moves into your hands, which then moves you into action. And they were just using different parts and never connecting everything together. See, this is what we're talking about when he's saying, I'll show you this if you show me that. It's all because you have to have both. They, 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 they just work together. They're never meant to be separate. See, the thing is, if you believe in something and have faith in something, it's going to play out in your life. If you tell me you're an artist, I'm imagining I'm going to probably see you painting or drawing or creating something. If you tell me you're a musician, I'm going to probably at some point hear about how you play some kind of instrument in some way, shape, or form. If you tell me that you play golf, wouldn't I see you on the golf course at some point? And that's what James is trying to say. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are going to start to see these things playing out in your life. It's the natural evidence. My fourth point is good demon theology. Now, just hold on. We'll get there, and we're going to figure this all out. You're like, that seems weird. Well, we'll just get, we'll get there. Now, we spoke about this before, and it's, I want to bring it back up so we can understand a couple of things. So there's some work that we're going to have to start doing here in a second. <clears throat> now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was writing letters to fight against legalism, right? There was this idea that if I did a bunch of good works, that would please God, and God would be happy with my life if I did all the things that God said. So Paul's fighting this, and he's saying that's heretical, that's against God's word, that we know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, it's not by our own works, so no man can boast, right? So we know that that's what it says, and he's saying that you can't do that. You need to understand that it has to be in faith, because if we could save ourselves, why do we need Jesus to die on the cross? It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason why we would need that. And so he was fighting legalism as he was writing, especially in the book of Romans, okay? Now, we also know that James is writing to a different group of people. He's writing to those that just thought, if I just know about God, if I just know stories and things about God, and that's all that could save them. And because of that, they didn't have a high regard for holiness and righteousness. They didn't really matter in their life. That's called antinomianism. That's what he was talking about. So they were fighting these two different things. And so, as James is going to press into them on what they believe and what they're thinking, he's addressing the issue. He's saying this, uh, and he quotes what we quoted last week when we were talking about Jesus. You believe that God is one. That is something that every Jewish man and woman would know. They would say it almost every single day along with a bunch of other stuff. But that was a known statement that God is one. It's like, that's great. You should do that. But what he's going to press on is the idea that knowledge alone, is that, is that enough? Is it just this knowledge? Is that all it is? And then he says this, even the demons believe that. Now, this is where it's kind of a weird deal, right? So, have you ever thought about this? 
that demons have really good theology? Why do they have good theology? Where do they learn their theology? In the throne room of heaven when God made them. All of these demons, before they were cast out from the rebellion, worshipped and praised God. They saw him for who he was. They sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. They know who he is. They know how he functions. They know everything that he does. They get it. They understand theology. I would say this. Their theology might be better than ours because they've experienced it. We know that in Mark 1, 24, Jesus comes on the scene, a demon sees him, and he's like, it's the son of David, it's the Holy One. Has your time come to rule and reign? He's like, shut up. That's the Simon translation paraphrase. So it's not published yet, but it's coming out. And so, so he says that. So even the demons understand that. Yet here's the problem. We know their future, don't we? We know the future of the demons that have rebelled against God. They are not a part of the kingdom. They are not saved. They're not, they're not there. See, they fear God. They fear his power. They believe, but everything that they're motivated by when they obey him is based out of fear. Yet they are in rebellion against God. Because their belief is just knowledge without obedience. And even more important, their belief is without obedience and it's without love. Because here's the reality. They have no love and affection for God. They hate God. They hated him so much they tried to overthrow him. They tried to take his throne, which is comical. So they knew the right theology and yet they didn't do that. Their actions show how they felt about God. Their faith and belief that they have in God was useless to them. And then where we're going to do the bulk of our work today is the patriarch and the prostitute. And that's going to be verses 21 through 26. And, and James comes in a little, bit, a little bit hard, right? And so in verse 20 he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he's going to go into something they would understand. Now, James is speaking again to men and women who grew up Jewish. They would know exactly who Abraham is. They would know who the patriarch is. They would know where they came from. They would understand their history really, really well. They understand that. And so as he brings this up, he's going to refer to the life of Abraham. But if you understand what's being quoted, he's talking about two different times in the life of Abraham. As a matter of fact, you can go read it later. You can go to, well, we can read it right now if we want to. We can go to Genesis 15, and we can go to Genesis 22. <clears throat> Genesis 15, it says, And he brought to him outside and said, Look at all towards heaven, and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. He said to them, So shall your offspring bring. And he believed, so Abraham believes God, the Lord, and was counted to him as righteousness being made right with God. He believed God. That's Genesis 15. And then we have Genesis 22. Uh, 12, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son. So we see these two interactions taking place, and there's like seven chapters in between and a lot of years that are in between all these things, okay? So the word that can become problematic as we read these areas is one word and one word alone. Anyone know? Justified. 
That's the word that we need to look at and understand what it means. So the word justified is actually the same word that Paul would use, and it's the same word that James is going to use as they're talking about what that looks like. Now, that word justified, and I'm going to try to say it's uh, dichoamia is the word that we're talking about, actually has two meanings. Same word, two meanings. And it, it can do that. We see that at different times, and we just need to understand how it's being used in the context of being used. And I'm going to give you some examples so we can understand it. So the first one means to be justified. To be or become judicially vindicated as having complied with the requirements of the law of God. So this is how Paul was using it in Romans 4, 1 through 5. When he's using the word justified, that's how he's using that word. He's talking about someone being saved, talking about their salvation, okay? This is how you're saved. It is by faith alone so that no man can boast. That's where, what he's talking about. Now, there's another meaning for that word. The other meaning can mean to be vindicated, to be or become shown to be right by providing justification or proof. So the other one is just saying that there's proof of the statement that you've just made. So how do we know this word is used in different ways? Well, here's one in Luke 7, 35. This is the words of Jesus, okay? He says this, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom isn't made right with God, right? That's not like, hey, God died for the wisdom of the world to be justified before God. So that's not how he's using that word. As a matter of fact, the way he's using the word is exactly how the second word is being communicated. That wisdom will be justified by our children. That we will see something birthed out of wisdom, and that will show if it's true or not. That's all he's saying in that statement. See, James is not saying that, that we're going to be made with right by works. That's not what he's communicating. What he's saying is that there, this is, there is a proof to your life that shows that you are saved. That's all he's saying. So the, remember the question, if someone says that, that they have faith, you can have faith. He's just saying there's going to be some things that are going to kind of play out in that. That's not what saves you. He's not rejecting that theology at all. It's, you ever had someone tell something to you, and they go, you need to justify that statement. You ever said that? I've said that. That's what he's saying there. He's like, it's the same thing that we use today. And so the reference to Abraham is talking about how his faith played out. It's saying that he was made right with God in Genesis 15. He was righteous before God. Believing in who he is and what he did made him right with him. That's, that's where that came from. And what James is saying in chapter 22 of Genesis is that when he went up to the mountain, when he took his son and God said, go and sacrifice your only son. By the way, the one that he knew was the promise for his offspring to be a mighty nation— that he believed, and he didn't, he didn't wait, he didn't drag his feet, he said, here I am, Lord, and he went. He didn't hesitate, and yet he goes, and he does what God says, and then when he goes to do that, he says, now I have seen that you love me more than anything, and then he, I love what he does, what's he do? He provides a substitution, the same way that he did for us, that we need a substitution It just showed that everything that had happened was true. And that's what's going, that, that's what James is trying to say. There was proof of his faith that he had it. He was acting it out. His faith was working in conjunction with his actions. See, it's one thing. It's not two things. And this is what a living faith looks like. 
It is active in the life of a believer. And he wants these men and women to know that your faith is going to have some kind of motion. It's going to do something to you. We were one thing one way, and we're a new thing today. And then he, he moves to, to Rahab. In Joshua 2, 1 through 21, you can go and read that story. See, the thing with Rahab is she lived in the city of Jericho, right? And so she's living there, so who's her allegiance to? The king of Jericho, the city of Jericho, the laws and rules of Jericho. She, she was all in. That this is my place. This is where I belong. Well, the problem was is that there's this group of people called the Israelites, and they've got a God that's giving them victory over every single area they go to and is handing the land over, and they heard about it. They knew about it. As a matter of fact, in verse 11, we see that she says this. So basically the story is this. She is in the city of Jericho. The Israelites send spies to go check it out to make sure, like, how are we going to defeat this and then bring the information back. The king hears that there's spies in his city, and he sends out all these guys to go find them. Rahab finds the spies hiding in her area. She keeps them covered, covers for them, and then they say, oh, if you go run after them, you catch them. They went that way. They went that away. I just, like, that's, like, so classic. And yet, they get up and they say, hey, why did you do that? And this is the response in verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, by the way, capital L-O-R-D is that word. It's not some random God. Some, no, this is the proper name, Yahweh. That's the word that's being used here, okay? Your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Do you see what she's saying? I understand who the God Yahweh is. I understand that he is more powerful than any other being in the entire universe. He controls everything. You know what she had in that moment? A change of allegiance. And what you see in that is this, is that she said that she believed her heart melted. She understood who he was. She should have told the king. She had guards right, they're right here. Stab that bush and they'll all die. It'll be great. You get them all. No. Her allegiance had shifted to God and God's people. She had rejected the old way of life and the old king. And she has a new king. And so when the moment came, she acted out her faith by protecting the people of God. You see what she's doing? It's interesting. So like, James is talking to these people, and I keep saying they're going through a hard time, and I want you to hear that. But he's saying this, I don't want you to respond the way that the world responds to trials and tribulation and persecution. You need to respond as a Christian does in this moment, with faith in God that he will provide, that he will sustain, that he will give you the strength to endure what you can't endure on your own. And that is going to look different from the world. And that is a beautiful thing as the world sees it. goes, why are you doing that? Why are you acting that way? How can you have joy in a time of tribulation? How can you have hope when the world seems hopeless? Point all glory to God in every single way. By the way, what James is saying, he's not the only one who said that. As a matter of fact, if you look at Paul, pull up that next slide. You can write those down, look those up. Galatians 5, 6. 
faith working through love, that there would be something that you would live out. Ephesians 2.10, that you would walk in good works. 1 Corinthians 5.7, that you are a new creation, and a new creation actually lives differently. That in Titus 1.16, that those that denied him with their deeds, that there's also the flip side of it. And in Titus 2.11-12, that they live godly lives. This is Paul saying this. Paul's saying the exact same thing that James is saying. He didn't, they didn't disagree with each other. They agreed with each other. They're just talking to two different groups of people with two different circumstances going on. Look at the words of Jesus. He said it as well. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Healthy trees bear good fruit. Matthew 12, 33. A tree is known by its fruit. Jesus really liked trees. Luke 13, 6 through 9. The parable of the barren fig tree. So he keeps talking about your life as the tree and the fruit is what you live out. See, if we have a new DNA, we have a new heart that beats differently. And it's going to produce different fruit in your life. If you look at the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones, they were dead, they did nothing, they were laying there. And then God brings them back to life and they get up and they stand and they live. That's what James wants these men and women to know. By the way, I made this really rough quote with Martin Luther, didn't I? Like the first series, like Martin Luther said some really bad things about James. He just didn't like the book of James. But Martin Luther later in his life would say this as well. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Faith is not meant to just do nothing. It's not just meant to be there. It is accompanied by works because they work together. Okay, what does this mean for us? You're like, that's a lot of information. What do I do with this? There's something that I've noticed just recently, and I don't know where it's coming from. I'm planning on doing a sermon on it, but I just want to say a couple of things. There are people, uh, as, I, as I talk with people, as I'm visiting people, I'm hearing things about people, that there is this thing that's happening where there are people that are unsure about the assurance of faith that they have in Jesus Christ and their destiny. And I get really nervous about that because I want to just, I'm just going to read some verses because I just think I just, I don't need to talk. I just need to read some verses. In Matthew 8, uh, 1 through 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Okay, can you please accept that? Can you please hear that? If you are in Jesus, that's who you are. In 5, 1 through 2, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's what we have for those that claim Jesus as their Lord. In uh, chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, that's who you are. And in uh, verse 8, did I already do 8? I did 8, a different 8. 8, uh, 30, 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you this. If you love Jesus Christ, you are saved. Please hear me say that. You do not have to question your salvation. 
And by the way, I love saying this. If you're questioning your salvation, it means you're convicted, which means God is actively working in your life and you're with him. Can you just sit in that for a second? You need to hear this truth. The enemy wants you to believe lies that are not true about your life and that you are not saved and that this last sin is going to put you into hell and you're going to be separated from... Neither height nor death or anything will be able to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. He's calling them to this. And he's calling us. Examine your life. It's okay to ask questions about your faith. What did he say in the beginning? That the testing of your faith would produce steadfastness. See, life is full of tests to trust and believe and to follow God and to submit to him. That's what he's calling you to. He he doesn't want them to be hopeless. He doesn't want them to be beat up. He doesn't want them to doubt their salvation. He wants to encourage them with joy that that conviction is God's love for them because he knows that this thing that they're involved in, this thing that they're doing, this thing that they're not representing is actually dangerous for them. It's bad for them. And he wants them to grow in their faith so they won't be in that spot. So we can have joy knowing that God is actively working in our heart. And we can see that for what it is and we can repent, which means having a change of heart and a change of mind. This is what happened to me across the street from my parents' house on Blossom Hill Road in San Jose, California, sitting on a cement pylon. God grabbed me and he shook me. He's like, what are you doing? One foot on and one foot over here is not going to work, Simon. You're either all in and you're not. Where are you? Where are you with me? Thank God for that night. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that night. I don't know where I'd be. He's not saying, by the way, that your life's going to be perfect. Like, oh, God, I got to walk perfect. I'm never going to sin. As a matter of fact, next week in chapter 3 and verse 2 says, for we all stumble in many ways and in oftentimes. Like, I get it. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. That's a part of life on this side of eternity, isn't it? We still live in a fallen, broken world. But within that, he's saying, when you do say that, repent it, reject of it. Put it aside. See, this tension, he's talking to believers, but I, I tend to believe that there's some people in there that need to hear this in that room. That They're like, you're playing a game with God. Don't play games with God. He knows your heart. He can see everything about your life. He's calling them to action. He's calling them to wake up. He's calling them to stop having a dead faith and have a living faith. Are you... Are you seeing the proof of your faith in your life? Now, this can go one of, if you have a hard heart, you're like, yeah, I'm good. That's always how it goes. And those who have a really sensitive spirit are like, I don't think I see any. And you beat yourself up. That's not, like, let's stop that, okay? Your sensitive spirit, your sensitive heart is evidence that you are, okay? That's what it is. Because you care about what God thinks. I talked with someone this week, and they were just like, I just pray that I'm I'm saved. I'm like, you are saved. You are saved. You know who Jesus is. You know what he's done for you. He's rescued you. Here's the thing. The living God, Jesus, didn't come to die so you would have a dead faith. He came to give you a living faith. You're a new creation. We get to be the light of the world everywhere we go 
we get to take the message of Jesus forward in how we live and how we speak and how we talk, who we interact with all the time. I was at a, I was at a service yesterday, and one of the things that was a resounding comment over and over again is how this individual just loved Jesus. And he had a statement that says, do you know my friend? And then he would share the gospel every single time. And that he was generous, and that he was kind, and he was a mentoring man, and he cared for other people. He was saved, and his works worked in conjunction with his salvation. He had faith that was lived out. And I remember just getting teary-eyed as I'm listening to him talk about who he is. I'm like, there's just so much evidence of his life that he loved Jesus. And all I'm asking us to do today is, let's take some time and just, just ask the question. Ask someone you care about, someone who knows you. I remember when I first kind of woke up and I just, I had to ask him, like, is there any fruit? <laughs> like, is anything budded? Is anything there? And they're like, you are so much better than you were. You were a mess, Simon. <laughs> and I'm, it's there, and sometimes you need someone else to help you see that. That's why we, that's why we just spend time together. That's why we go to our, our life groups. And maybe that'll be a question this week, like, hey, where have you seen God work in your life? And I love our life. We have robust conversations. I've heard you guys have been having great conversations in life groups. Continue to have those really good conversations. Continue to wrestle through the word of God. Continue to grow in that faith and continue to be lights in the world. We're going to take communion today. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to take it corporately. And normally we do it two ways. One, we take it corporately. And then two, we take it individually. Today's a corporate day. But I want us to have time to reflect. There is no better time to engage God with where you are than we've just sat under his word and we've felt the weight of that in our lives. That we would ask God, God, man, am, am, I, am I just playing games? Lord, are there areas where I just need to, to lay those things down? Are there areas of teleos that you're trying to move me towards completeness, fullness? Are there fractures that I need to start making decisions? I need to start trusting you and believing you in these areas. And ask those questions. And take some time. We're not going to actually sing. We're just going to play some music underneath it. That's all we're going to do. And as we do that, let the Holy Spirit convict. Feel the active work of God in your life because he loves you. Because he cares for you. Let me pray.